Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful that you love us, that you walk with us and care for us. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, the sanctifying power of your word, which leads us to salvation and leads us in obedience and in love for you. I ask, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, that you would teach us and lead us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What good is it if a person says they have faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Uh, over the centuries, this passage uh, that we're going to look at this morning, uh, James 2, verses 14 through 26, uh, has been a source of consternation for a lot of faithful Christians. Uh, over the course of the first 1,500 years of church history, people slowly began to use this passage to justify a position that uh, you can be saved by works, or that works are required in order to obtain salvation. In the early 1500s, there was a major battle over this specific idea. How does a person get saved? How does a person obtain salvation? The Roman Catholic Church, under the leadership of the Pope, declared that salvation comes through faith in Jesus and obedience to the church. Faith and works. Uh, they believe that, uh, they believed and continue to believe that one must partake in the sacraments of the church in order to maintain and to merit their salvation. They believe that when a person comes forward to partake in the Lord's Supper, that they are receiving the righteousness of Christ, thereby obtaining salvation. They believe that baptism is the mode of giving someone new birth in Christ. This is why they baptize their children. They believe that they are bringing children into salvation through their baptism. They believe that these external actions, as well as a few others, can bring salvation to the individual alongside their faith in Jesus. In the 1500s, several men arose to battle this false doctrine. They were called the Reformers. The, the Catholic Church used tradition to justify their views, but the Reformers sought to reform the church according to what the Bible says. Using the Bible as their standard, they stood on something called sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And they uh, <clears throat> came to the conclusion that our salvation is by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These are what are called the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, which is faith alone, Sola Gratia, which is grace alone, Solus Christus, which is Christ alone, and Soli Deo Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. These were the foundational principles that they stood on. When they compared the church's tradition to God's word, they decided to reject all tradition that did not align with the Bible. The idea that we can earn our salvation through obedience to the traditions of the church is not only wrong, it's a demonic doctrine. And it leads people to hell. The doctrine of salvation by works is a damnable heresy. And it is completely opposed to God's word. And I bring this up this morning because... We are going to be looking at the passage that they use to justify their views. We'll be looking at James 2. 
This is a passage that has been misinterpreted and used by Roman Catholics to justify their false doctrine. So let's read it, and I'll explain why that is. James 2, verses 14 through 26. Please stand in reverence to God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. But show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. Please be seated. Now at face value, you look at this section of scripture and you see the words, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone, which seems to support the idea that we need to have good works in order to obtain salvation. Now, there's a mistake that people often make when they are approaching the Bible. It's very common for us to find a single sentence and to pull it out of the Bible and use it to justify our views on something. And there are actually a lot of examples of this. Um, the, the most common, I think, is Jeremiah 29.11 which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And it's plastered on little signs in Christian bookstores, it's written on people's refrigerators, and it's used at almost every high, Christian high school graduation, college graduation, university graduation. And on, at, at face value, it seems like a great verse to quote, because God knows the plans he has for us, and he wants to prosper us, and that's good. The problem, of course, is that we yank that verse out of the context and apply it to ourselves when the verse is actually referring to the end of an Israelite exile in Babylon. This verse is not given as a promise to all believers for all times and all situations. It is a promise to a specific group of people in Babylon who will be returning home in the future. So, uh, you can put that verse on your fridge when you have been to Babylon for a few years. <laughs> Otherwise, you should probably not be using it to justify your position that God is going to make you happy, wealthy, and, and you know, all those other things. Uh, another one is Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is written on the wall in every Bible college gymnasium. I almost guarantee it. Go to any Bible college, most anyway, and you'll see it written on the wall somewhere. Maybe a little plaque, maybe plastered in huge letters across the wall. Uh, it has nothing to do with sports, though. It has everything to do with the Apostle Paul sitting in prison for preaching the gospel. And that he can endure the hardship of prison 
because he has hope in Christ. It has nothing to do with having the strength to make that extra basket and win the game. We need to be careful about taking verses out of context and using them to justify our position without considering the intent of the author. I saw a little uh, uh, page-a-day calendar things, and, and on one of the calendars was the verse, uh, all things have been handed to me, and if you will just fall down and worship me, all these things will be yours. Which sounds like a very inspirational, wonderful quote, until you realize that the person who said that quote was Satan talking to Jesus. But if we pull it out of context and don't say who said it, don't say why they said it, and just plaster it on this thing, it, it totally changes the meaning. And that's the case with the verse, uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We pull that out, or the, the Roman Catholics do, they pull that out and they say, there you go. Not justified by faith alone, the reformers were bogus, and uh, you need to do good things to, to get saved. But uh, the book of James is written to a very specific audience. He's writing to Christians. And his purpose is in writing is very clear. He wants to help people become more like Christ. James is not teaching us here that we can obtain salvation by good works. Because if you look at the context of the whole book, going back to chapter 1, you'll see a very clear statement about salvation and how it comes to a person. In, in, ver in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It says of his own will, he brought us forth. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that salvation involves new birth. That's in John chapter three. It involves God bringing us from death to life. That's Ephesians two. So when it says that God brought us forth of his own will, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about bringing us forth and giving us new life. Uh, what this passage is also saying is that God saves us by his own will, not by our works. Ephesians 2 is very clearly, or says very clearly, that we are saved by God's grace through our faith, not as a result of works. It's extremely explicit. And it actually comes up in other passages. Uh, there's one in 1 Timothy, I believe, or maybe it's 2 Timothy. I can't remember. Anyway, but it, it comes up a few times that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by works. This passage, uh, or I guess then the question is, what is this passage intended to teach us? And I would direct you to verse 14. Look at the beginning. Look at the context of the passage. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers? So he's talking to people who are Christians, or people who are calling themselves Christians. And it says, If a person, what good is it, my brothers, if a person says they have faith, but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? The passage is not talking about how to get saving faith. It is about what saving faith looks like. It's about how to understand, if you're going to say that you have faith, it's helping you understand how that faith is supposed to look. The passage is not about how to get saving faith. This is an instruction to people who call themselves Christians. It's also a crucial passage for those who are not yet Christians because it helps those people make an informed decision as regards to whether or not they will commit themselves to Christ. No one should make a profession of faith in Jesus until they understand what it means to make a profession of faith in Jesus. We need to understand the implications of a commitment to Jesus. 
we as Christians need to be like Jesus, who didn't allow people to join with him until they understood what it would mean for their lives. There were a lot of people who came to Jesus and said, teacher, I want to follow you. And he said, no, <laughs> go and do this thing and, and take care of business and then come back because I'm going to require your whole life. Becoming a Christian has an impact on every aspect of life. Uh, there's this idea that a person's Christianity is up to them to work out. That whatever, when a person decides to become a Christian, they make that mean whatever they would like to. The idea is that Christianity is an add-on to other spirituality to improve what's already happening in a person's life. This is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that to be a true Christian, one must be wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. The gospel calls on a person to abandon self-focused desires and to put Jesus above everything else. Our passage that we're looking at this morning is not about how to get salvation. It's about what is true Christianity. The passage is teaching us what a Christian looks like. So if a person says they're a Christian, they need to behave a certain way. There should be evidence of their faith. To illustrate this point, James uses the example of a person saying one thing and doing another. So imagine seeing someone in need and saying that you really hope that someone helps them when you're standing right there. If you have the ability to help but you do nothing, it shows that you don't really care. When you're driving down the road and you see a car on the side of the road that's broken down and you drive past it saying somebody should really help them, but you don't pull over, you don't really care if someone helps them or not. You've just driven right past. You had the ability to pull over and call someone to come and help. You had the ability to offer them a ride, but you didn't. And so don't pretend that you're really, really compassionate when you're not going to pull over and actually help. Your words of compassion are generally in that situation more to make yourself feel righteous than to actually spur you on to good works. It's pointless. It's unhelpful. So here in verse 17, we have the main idea of the passage. Faith without works is dead. This is the thesis statement. This is the argument that he is going to make. So what we need to do now is to define what is meant by the word faith. The way that James is using the word in this passage is something along the lines of I would uh, intellectual acknowledgement of facts. Uh, the point of the passage what James is trying to do is he's trying to redefine faith to mean wholehearted dedication. So he wants to get us away from the idea that faith is just intellectual acknowledgement of facts. And he wants to move us into the camp of thinking that faith, when we say faith, what we mean is wholehearted dedication. That's what faith is supposed to be. What he's attempting to communicate is that a person who claims to have faith but has no actions to back it up has nothing of value. James is speaking out against two different ideas. One is that we can be saved by works. The other idea is that works are meaningless. So lots of times the, the way that Satan attacks a church is to draw them to one side or the other. So either a church will be uh, legalistic and believe that works are the most important thing, or they'll be on the other side and they'll be kind of hedonistic thinking that works are meaningless and it's just all about free spirituality and just doing whatever we want. 
And those are two extremes that James is trying to pull us away from, trying to bring us into the middle. Look at verse 18. It says, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. This is the idea that you can have one or the other. No. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The true Christian has both. It's not an either-or scenario. It's a both-and scenario. True faith is proven by works. This is the big issue. No one is saved through simple mental acknowledgement of facts. If that were the case, the demons would be saved. You know, it says here in verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. They understand the authority of God. And when Jesus was on earth, he ran into a lot of demons who would constantly identify him correctly. Even when there were no humans around who knew who Jesus was. So who told the demons? Well, they just knew. They knew who Jesus was. They have very orthodox beliefs, but those beliefs, that mental acknowledgement of facts that Jesus is God, is not enough to lead them to salvation. It has no impact on the way they behave. Other than that, they shudder. Understanding the facts of God's existence and lordship don't lead to salvation. Wholehearted commitment does. Intellectual understanding about the facts of God and the gospel is the first step, but that understanding has to lead to action. And that's where obedience comes in. This is something that Jesus talked about in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just because a person makes a profession of faith, just because someone says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, just because someone goes through the motions and prays the prayers and does the things and make some sort of profession does not mean that they're saved. Just because you acknowledge the truth about God does not mean you're saved. The life must show the reality of that faith. It must be wholehearted devotion, a love for God, a relationship with God that goes beyond intellect and into the heart. This is the problem with how the word faith is often used. It is supposed that faith is an intellectual or, or maybe even just like a spiritual exercise. But as we see in James, he's expanding it to, he's expanding the meaning to include the whole being of a person because faith leads to action. If faith does not lead to action, it is not faith. It is knowledge without zeal. To illustrate this point, James brings up Abraham. Now, Abraham was a worshiper of God, and in Genesis 15, God declares that Abraham is righteous because he believes God. So he doesn't say, because you've done all these things that I want you to do, now you are saved. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And later on, in Genesis 22... God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Now, if Abraham did not have saving faith in God, he would not have actually gone up the mountain. If Abraham did not truly have wholehearted dedication to God, he would not have gone up the mountain. But because he did, his trust in God led him to go up 
the mountain. And, and God, God intervened and Isaac was not actually sacrificed, but Abraham's trust in God could no longer be questioned after that because he had proved his faith by his works. Hence, James says, his faith was completed by his works. So you see what the passage means when it says that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. What he's affirming is that Abraham's initial trust meant salvation. You look at verse 23, it says, The scripture was fulfilled when it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That the works that he did in obedience were the completion of his faith. So works are an important part of salvation. They are not the method of obtaining salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation. The second example of this idea is given through the example of Rahab the prostitute. In the book of Joshua, the Israelite nation was preparing to come out of the wilderness and enter into the land of Canaan to conquer it. And the first city in their path was the city of Jericho, where Rahab the prostitute lived. The leader of the Israelite nation, Joshua, sent two spies into Jericho to assess its capabilities and to prepare a plan of attack. The spies were sheltered by Rahab and hidden, and she explained her reasons for betraying her people to the spies. She said in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. So you see, it starts with knowledge. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. So it actually went even beyond just plain old knowledge to actual fear. And the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We all know that the Lord has given you the land. We're all afraid of you because we've heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to, the, devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second again, and just to point out that she knew exactly who God was. She had mental acknowledgement of facts. And everybody in Jericho knew that their gods were not going to help them against this God. They knew that they were going to lose. They knew that the Israelites were going to come into their land and conquer them and kill them all. They knew that. But only Rahab said this. Now, please then swear to me by the Lord as I have built, uh, as I have dealt with you, you will also deal kindly with me and my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and to deliver our lives from death. Israel was a nation of slaves that God liberated from Egypt, the most powerful government on earth at the time. And then they walked through the sea on dry land, spent 40 years in the wilderness, eating food that fell out of the sky. They conquered enemy nations at every turn. And the response of the people in Jericho was they understood that, but they did nothing about it except Rahab. The, people, the response of the people of Jericho is contrasted with the response of Rahab because all of them believed that they were going to die and that God was more powerful than any other God, but only Rahab actually did something about it. And so their intellectual understanding of the facts about God did them no good in the end. It only did good for Rahab because Rahab actually committed herself to God. She helped the messengers. 
She, after the city was conquered, she married an Israelite man. She joined them, and she actually is one of Jesus' ancestors. Her intellectual understanding of the reality of God led her to obedience and commitment to him. Everyone else in the city had an intellectual understanding but refused to commit. Their intellectual understanding and their fear, actually, went even beyond intellectual understanding to fear. But that wasn't enough, and they were destroyed. Back to the book of James. Finally, James uh, restates his main idea. Now, faith without works is dead. Faith without action is not real faith. It's a dead husk with the appearance of godliness, but it's rotten and empty. It's like a dead tree. It looks like a tree, but it produces nothing. And it eventually falls down and rots. True faith leads to a changed life. It leads to a changed life. Salvation that is given by God involves the complete restructuring of the person in question. They move from being self-focused to God-focused. They walk in obedience to God. A profession of faith that does not lead to a changed life is a false profession. Saying the sinner's prayer does not make someone a Christian. Just because a person says they have faith doesn't mean that they do. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian, which is why I preach the gospel every single week. Because it's possible to think you're a Christian when you're not. And it may not even be your fault. You may have just never had to think about it before. It's possible that the people who shared the gospel with you and led you to faith didn't explain the implications and didn't help you understand what it would mean for your life. No one should become a Christian or call themselves a Christian until they understand how it will change their lives and the sacrifices that they'll have to make for it. Because Jesus' call is a radical call. He's calling for all of us to do a complete 180. He calls on Christians to love and value him above all other things. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus told his disciples, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you love your children more than Jesus, you're not worthy of him. That's a tough pill to swallow. It's a really radical message. He's saying that you have to be totally devoted to him. Totally. This is, the, this is coming from the mouth of Jesus. This isn't just some guy deciding one day to tell everybody that they have to start following Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. Say, you need to be totally devoted to me above everything else. This is what it means to be a Christian, to count death as gain, to consider everything else as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. If we're going to claim the title of Christian and say that we have faith, we have to back it up with how we live and what we value. Because faith without works is dead. So this morning... This is what you should do. This is what we should do. Repent. We need to repent of our self-serving tendencies. We need to repent of our failure to put Jesus first. 
and we are to worship him. We worship him for his unfailing love and faithfulness. We worship him for his willingness to take our failure upon himself. Worshiping him for his grace that he would save even you, that he would save even me. We worship through song, through words, and we worship him through our works. Not because he requires us to earn his love, but because he has given his love freely. We honor God. We honor God with our whole being. And as we do so, we receive eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be obedient to you. Help us to value you above all other things. Give us the grace to do your will. Help us walk in obedience. Help us to be wholeheartedly committed to you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.